So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to go ahead and grab that. We are going to be in Luke chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one um, below you in the chair there. It's on 800, page 876 in the Bibles that we provide. 876, Luke chapter 17 beginning in verse 1. Our city has faced so many questions and emotions, both up and down, over the past week. We've cheered on friends that have trained for months at the finish line on a Patriots Day here in Boston. We've watched in horror, horror, wondering if anyone we knew was involved, scouring Facebook and seeing post after post of friends saying, I'm safe, I'm at home. I was, I was close to the blast, but I'm okay. And, and, and longing and, and wondering if anyone we knew was hurt. I can't imagine what the Costellos have gone through this week in that sense. We've steamed with anger over who could do such a ruthless act and why they could do it. You see, the front headlines on Tuesday should have been the marathon winners, but does anybody have a clue who won the marathon? I mean, has anybody even thought about the praise that has been robbed of those that have trained months? Or what about those that trained for months and never even got to finish the race? Or what about the millions of dollars that businesses have lost? I mean, think about it. Probably for some in that area, that day, you know, there's no way to confirm this. I'd have to look at the sales report of these businesses. Maybe Logan could help me out in the back there. But my guess is for some of these, this may be one of the largest sell days of the year, maybe one of the largest weeks of the year in that area with the amount of people that are brought in and it shut down. I saw somebody tweet that for Boston to be shut down for one day cost $333 million. Not even to think about the amount of money that we are having to pay or people are paying for protection for extra law enforcement. And we could go on and on and on. We have felt compassion and brokenness and sympathy for those who have died and been severely injured. From Crystal Campbell, from Medford, to the Costello family and their friends, and I'm sure that goes out even further. We've collectively longed for justice to be brought about in this crime. We've all watched in fear as we've been told to stay home because the suspect is at large. And then we've all collectively rejoiced and breathed a sigh of relief at his capture late Friday night. We've all expressed gratitude and thanks to many who have worked countless hours 
some probably even in our midst today, from doctors and nurses to law enforcement at the local and state level. We've watched Boston respond, Boston strong, with great unity and appreciation. We've all watched the opening ceremony from the Red Sox game yesterday and been proud to live in Boston. And yet many of us still have lingering questions. Why? Why me? Why not me? Will something like this happen again? When? Should I be paralyzed with fear? And where is God in all of this? Now, I probably won't answer every single one of your questions today. And let me just say this, Tanner and I are available for anyone. If you want to grab coffee, if you want to come in our home, that we could provide counsel or you have, come let us know. That's just what we're here for. But let's be honest. No one likes to think about death. In fact, we would rather escape reality. What we want to do is we want to turn the Red Sox game or go to a Red Sox game and a Bruins game and actually pretend as if none of this ever even happened. And so I was even reminded this past week that in Ecclesiastes, that the time of mourning is actually a good thing. Because the time of mourning reminds us of the reality of life and death. And so here's my challenge for you today. My challenge for you today is to take a mirror and put it in front of you and to stare into it and to let that mirror stare into your heart. Because I can't control what happens beyond my ability to the suspect and at large, but I can control how I respond within my own heart and make much of God. And so the question that I want to continue to come back to today is how is a Christian to respond in such a way that makes much of God in the midst of much tragedy? And I believe as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke that we are provided with such encouragement in Luke 17 this morning. And so the point of the text this morning is that we should clothe ourselves with traits of a growing disciple. And that in Luke 17, Luke gives us four such traits that will be very pertinent to what we've all faced this week. And so Luke 17, beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Let me just pause right there. Temptations to sin are sure to come. Doesn't this remind us that we live in a world that is not the way it is supposed to be? Temptations to sin are sure to come. We live in a world where Jesus is saying, hey, by the way, sin is ever-present. And temptations to sin will still be present and will still come. 
this takes us in our minds back to the beginning. Temptations are sure to come. Reminds us of the temptation where everything went wrong. And so let me just do this for a few minutes. I want to take this as an opportunity to help us think big picture about the presence of sin and evil and suffering on a global scale. And I want to do it using four words. The first one is creation. When we go back, and as this takes us back, we're reminded that in the beginning, God created everything good. Indeed, it was very good. Go read Genesis chapter 1. Paul's at 1, verse 31. And God's reflecting on all of his creation, and it was good. It was very good. God did not, he is not the author of sin and evil, as our statement of faith confesses. And yet we know as He created this earth and as He created Adam and Eve and as He placed them in there, in the garden, the good garden, He gave them one command. And He said this, You can eat of all of the trees in the garden, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will die. And yet temptations to sin, or to be sure, we're reminded in Genesis 3 of the temptation between the serpent and Eve. And the serpent said, did God really say that you will die? You see, the way temptation to sin works in us is it's questioning the word and the authority of God. And then as Eve looks and she says, it was delightful and she desired it, and she ate, and she disobeyed God, and like that, she gave Adam, and sin spread like a virus from one generation to the next, and the next, and even to ours. You see, we don't have to read long in Genesis to see the effects of sin. We see in Genesis chapter 3, we see the relationship between man is broken. They now see that they're naked. We see in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel and the first murder. And by the time that we get before the flood, we see God looking at everything he has made and the wickedness that had spread. And yet we also see that relationship between God was broken. They're kicked out of the garden. And the garden is guarded. This is not the way it was intended to be. And so as we look at our world, how does a Christian respond to much evil and suffering? We look and we say, this is not the way that God created it. And we see that sin has not only affected relationships between one another and relationship between God, but this whole earth is affected by sin. You see, we've been focusing primarily in Boston, but in this week there's also been other tragedy. West Texas. The earthquake in China and thousands that have been injured. You see, this, this is not an isolated case of the results of sin and evil. This is something that is common throughout the whole earth. And yet it is not the way it was supposed to be. Many look at this evil and they say, but where is God? 
Where is God in all of this? Man, if God were good, why would He let so much evil permeate our world? I want to share with you a quote from Alvin Plantiga, who says this. He poses and he says, perhaps the problem of evil is an even greater problem for the unbeliever. And this is what he says. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus no way to say there is such a, such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there is such a thing as horrifying wickedness and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Our, com our common experience looks at this evil, and we can commonly say this is evil. And Plantinga says, only if there is a standard by which we are obliged to live can we say that. And so, Christians, we should not worry and fear over the problem of evil. In fact, what I'm going to try to do here is explain that I think we have the best explanation for why it exists, and how we should respond. Creation, fall, rescue. In Genesis 3, right after the fall, God makes a promise, and it's a promise of rescue and a promise of hope. He promises that one of their descendants one day would come and destroy the works of the evil one. And this person is Jesus Christ. You see, this virus, this sin spread like a virus from generation to generation and without exception affects every single one of us except Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He never committed any evil. He never committed any injustice, and yet, look at the injustice that was brought him. I love Tim Keller's reflection on the cross as he says this, On the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours. We look at, we look at this week, and we see, we see the... The pain that I, I can't even put into words. I, I try to empathize and, and have sympathy, but yet I, I have not experienced it. So I'm doing my best, but yet the pain of what many are going through and will go through for years beyond years. And yet nothing compares with the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. You see, it wasn't just the physical pain of the nails in His hand and the thorn on His head and the nails in His feet and the spear in the side. It says this, 
he experienced the cosmic rejection of pain that exceeds ours. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't just physical pain. Jesus bore in his body the guilt of millions of sins that he did not deserve. That is the most unjust thing that has ever happened. And yet he continues, he had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. Every single one of us are infected with this virus of sin. How will God rescue us without ending us? God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. This is not the way it's supposed to be, and this is not the way it will be. Jesus not only died, but three days later, he rose from the dead with a glorified body, a body that eats and drinks and that you can touch, and yet this is the same body that ascended into heaven and is at right now the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And as we look at the resurrection, it provides us much hope. And it reminds us that the grave is not the end. One day, Jesus will return. We know the end of the story. We know creation, Genesis 1, we know fall, Genesis 3, but we also have Revelation 21 and 22 that paints this beautiful picture of a restored garden. In fact, let me tell you this, heaven is not off in some immaterial space. In the, in the return of Christ, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, just like there was in the beginning created a heaven and a earth. This new heaven and a new earth physical, will be redeemed, it will be cleansed, it will be restored, it will be perfected. There will be no more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more ruthless and heinous acts of evil. You see, the Christian can say that God has committed to destroying the works of evil and the only hope is in Jesus Christ. That is why my hope is not in the United States of America. Look, we can formulate stricter and greater gun laws, and we can have greater security, and not to say that those are bad things, but they don't address the ultimate problem. And I'm going to speak in reality. Let's think rightly about this. It will not surprise me when an act like this happens again. I'm not here to promise, hey, this is it, and it's done. The reality is, is, is there will be more acts like this. And, and we should, as a country, try to eliminate and bring about justice, but ultimate justice will only be brought about at the return of Christ when God destroys sin and the works of the evil one. That is the most that is the promise and the hope that I can give you today. Jesus hasn't returned yet. Now, 
I can also give you this promise. Not only will there be a new heaven and a new earth, there will be a great white throne judgment. And you read Revelation 20, 21, and 22, and every person will give an account for everything they have ever done. This is why, even though I am tempted to be angry and to cry out for justice, that I can cling to Romans 12 where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is why I can even pray for the salvation of this suspect, because I know ultimately God will bring about justice. Now this doesn't minimize that there are consequences for sin and that we should bring about justice here, but ultimate justice will be delivered by God. And so that I can commit that into God's hands. Look, if you're here today and you are crying out and saying, this is not fair, this is not just, let me tell you that the God of the Scriptures, Jesus Christ, is a God of justice. And he will bring about justice at the return of Christ. Luke 17, verse 1. I haven't made it very far. (laughs) And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. The first example, the first character trait of disciples is that we should examine our example. And we ought to hear this warning. Jesus says it would be better for you to drown yourself. The, the picture here is of immediate death. You tie a millstone around your neck and you throw yourself into the sea, you are dying. It, it would be better for you to die before you were to cause one of these little ones to sin. Who are these little ones? Contextually, if we're to go to Matthew 18, which is a parallel passage, he's talking about that unless one comes like one of these little ones, like a children, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. That our faith is, is faith like a child. And so little ones here are not necessarily talking about children. They're talking about new disciples in Christ. And so while Jesus doesn't tell us the fate of such a person who causes others to sin, he does give us this harsh reality. And I think you should wrestle with this. And Let me ask you this. Is there anything in your doctrine or life that's causing someone else to sin big or small? Disciples of Christ need to look at the mirror and let it look into heart and say, hey, is my example leading others to Christ or leading others away from Christ? Is my doctrine leading others to Christ or away from Christ? take heed. He says, pay attention to yourselves. This warning reminds us that he's sharing this with the disciples, which means this can even happen within the context of a local church. Examine your doctrine so you don't cause others to sin. Let's go on. Continuing in chapter 3. 
he gives another trait of disciples of Christ. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The second trait of disciples of Christ is that we should eagerly extend unrestrained forgiveness. Eagerly extend unrestrained forgiveness. Now let me tell you, the only way that, that verses 3 and 4 can happen without destroying relationships is when disciples are committed to other disciples. You get this? If I walk around and I'm seeing a brother sin and I'm rebuking him and there's no relationship, this is just going to be a tragic end to a relationship. What this assumes in the text is that there's a certain level of commitment between disciples. And so the first kind of implication of this that I want to share with you is that discipleship must be done in community. I think this is evident here in the text. And this is why at Redemption Hill, we value two things. Obviously, every Sunday, we're here at 1030 worshiping, but you hear us continue to talk about two other things, community groups and membership. Why? The reason for community groups, which is basically a, a gathering in someone's home of about 12 to 16 people, is that community groups provides the context where you can commit to other relationships and there can be this honest relationship going on where you can speak truth into somebody else's life and they can speak truth into your life. And then membership as a whole. I am, first of all, a member of Redemption Hill Church before I'm a pastor. And for me, that means that I have joined a family. And I'm telling my family, if for some reason you were to see me running in sin, I am giving you the responsibility and I'm pleading with you, please come and win me back. I need 17, 3 through 4 as much as you do. And this is why we value community groups and membership. And so... My first encouragement to you at Redemption would be to say, hey, have you committed to a small group, a community group that you are accountable to, that you can speak truth and they can speak truth into your life? And then secondly, why haven't you joined Redemption Hill Church? Take that next step and commit because of your need to be in this type of relationship. So it must be done in community. Second, we should rebuke with gentleness and love. For sake of time, I'm not going to linger here too long. But this assumes Jesus' other teaching in this area. We've already learned in Luke chapter 6 that before I try to take the speck out of my brother's eye, what am I first supposed to do? I'm supposed to take the huge log out of my own eye. So Jesus has already taught on that, so it would apply here. The, Jesus isn't saying that you're just some rampant looking, trying to find sin in somebody's life. The picture here is that I've got the mirror before my life, and I'm taking the speck and the, the log, the sin out of my own life as I'm seeing to help my brother and sister in Christ. So that is assumed here. And then notice that the, this is driven and it is motiva motivated by love. What is the ultimate goal of rebuking? It's restoration, right? Rebuke. If they repent, forgive. The goal is that you would restore relationship. Because let's be honest, sin distorts and breaks relationship. Husband and wife, roommates, 
brothers and sisters, church members. Sin ruins relationships. So the ultimate goal is motivated by love. It, it serves redemptive purposes to restore relationships. And we ought to do it with gentleness. That would picture the gospel. So let me just pose this. Is there someone in your relational sphere that God is wanting to use you as an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to bring about the pursuit of godliness in somebody else's life? This is to you. Now, the context here in wider scriptures, Matthew 18, and in Matthew 18, it even talks about the role of the local church so that it doesn't just... And, this, this situation doesn't disintegrate into a, a personal battle. And so I'm not going to jump into that, but go read Matthew 18. There even, even is a role that the local church comes alongside of, of, of sin where restoration is not taking place. So do it in community. Rebuke with gentleness and love. Repent with sincerity. What if you're the one that's being rebuked? How do you respond? As you grow in Christ, hopefully, you'll be able to see your own sin against, uh, against others before they even have to rebuke you. As you're coming before God daily and the mirror of the Word is searching your soul, hopefully you see your own sin. That, as we grow in Christ, that would be the ultimate goal, that you're continuing, hey, do I have sin against a brother? But there are times where we are blinded by sin and don't even see where we've hurt somebody else. So when a brother or sister in Christ comes and rebukes you, how should you respond? True repentance. And that's the picture here. If he repents, forgive him. True repentance looks like this. You accept full responsibility for a real wrong committed. You don't push blame on somebody else like Adam and Eve do. You look at square in the face, you know what? Yeah, I blew it. I'm a sinner. You stop the hurtful behavior. And then you make restitution where necessary. That's what repentance looks like. Is there a relationship that you have sinned against or even somebody's rebuked you that you've responded with pride instead of humility, that you need to acknowledge your sin, you need to turn from it, and you need to make restitution? Jesus says, go and do that today. Go and do that today. We're actually going to partake in the Lord's Supper later on. And Jesus says, if, if you're bringing your gift to the altar, and you've got a sin against a brother, put your gift down and go reconcile with the brother. And so I would even say, before you partake of communion today, go reconcile with your brother or sister in Christ. Repent with sincerity. And then eagerly extend unrestrained forgiveness. Isn't this amazing what Jesus says? If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In Matthew, the context here is Peter asks a question. Hey, Peter, sorry. Hey, Jesus, Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Now, in Luke, that question has already been assumed. I can hear you now. You're saying, hey, John, forgiveness is hard to do. Forgiveness is not easy. And hey, let's be honest. Forgiveness is not easy. I don't want to come across this as, just, hey, you ought to forgive. It's an easy thing to do. Forgiveness is not easy. But I can hear your excuses now. John, there are some repeated offenses 
that no sane person would ever forgive. John, do you know how hard it is to forgive some people, to forgive some sins? John, do you know how hard and how much they have hurt me? Let me share a story with you. It actually comes out of Matthew 18. It's actually the story that Jesus shares with Peter. When Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Jesus says this. Let me tell you about a king and a servant. There was a servant who owed his king 10,000 talents. Let me bring that into today's terms. One talent equals 20 years worth of wages. Take 20 years worth of wages times 10,000. Look, we're talking, in, in, in today's terms, we're talking about billions of dollars. Jesus has just cast a story of a picture of debt where there is no way that this person could pay the debt back. And so do you know what the servant does? The servant comes and pleads before Jesus. Sorry, pleads before the king to have mercy and to forgive him. And do you know what the king does? The king forgives every single talent. Wow. But the story doesn't end there. This servant that's just been forgiven has a fellow servant that owes him 100 denarii. You know how much a denarius equaled? A day's wage. One day's wage times a hundred. Right? You got you go work for a hundred days and you could pay off this debt. And this fellow servant comes before him and pleads with him. And in fact, if you go read Matthew 18, it's the same plea that the other servant did before the king. And you know what the servant does? He doesn't forgive him. You're standing there. What are you thinking? That is not fair. Has this kid lost his mind? His master just forgave him billions, and yet he won't forgive a hundred days' wages? And so they go and tattletale. They go to the king, and they tell the king, do you know this servant that you just forgave what he did? And you know what the king does? The king goes, and he takes that servant, and he throws him in jail, and he says, you will stay there until you pay back every last penny. And then Jesus gets to the point, and he says, so my heavenly Father will do to every single one of you who does not forgive his brother from the heart. No one can ever be in debt to you more than you were in debt to God. Do you get that? No one will ever be more in debt to you than you were in debt to God. And you may be saying, hey John, but, but you don't understand. If I forgive this person, I will never be able to forget. Let me just give you some excuses here. Man, I, I can never forget what this person has done. And let me just tell you, forgiving somebody is not the same thing as forgetting. 
And we see the scriptures that says God takes our sin and he removes them as far as the east is from the west. But how can God forget our sin? Look, God can't forget our sin. What he does is he chooses to never hold our sin against us. Hey, John, but man, if I forgive this person, it's going to minimize the wrong that they've done. Hey, look, the very fact that you've got to forgive them means that they've actually committed a real wrong against you. And forgiveness doesn't minimize. Look, if this suspect bomber comes before you, how could you ever forgive them? I mean, this is getting really close to the heart, right? I mean, this is one of the prime examples. The thought could be, if I forgive them, well, then that's going to minimize all this pain that he has caused me, and that is not the case. Forgiveness does not... When God forgives you, do you think it minimizes the pain and hurt that you've caused him? The sin, the, the wrath that you should deserve? No, it doesn't minimize that. Forgiveness doesn't remove the consequences either. When you forgive somebody, look, there are consequences for sin. And it takes time to build trust. Look, if a husband and a wife, if, if a husband has cheated on a wife, it's going to take time to rebuild trust. So it doesn't minimize, hey, there are consequences for sin. Forgiving this guy doesn't mean that the state may go after him, the, the, the federal government may go after him and send him to the death penalty. Our state won't do it, but the federal will. Could. Forgiveness is not, hey, I don't feel like forgiving. You know what's ironic about this text? If you go back to it, Jesus says, you must forgive him. Jesus is not saying forgive him when you feel like it. He is commanding you. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is about obedience. So how do you have a forgiving heart? Let me share a few quotes with you. How do you have a forgiving heart? The first one is this. Herein lies the problem. If we don't know and understand the immensity of our own debts of sin, we don't have a chance of having forgiving hearts. Aaron continues on. He says, For the most part, we're absolutely dull to the height and depth and breadth of our sin. We are unschooled in our own wretchedness while living under an illusion of our own goodness. Let these sink into your hearts. And so I'll wrap this section up by putting up Ephesians 4, which is the same line of thought. And Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Let me tell you this. Look, if you're not a follower of Christ, it makes no sense to go forgive somebody. But as a follower of Christ, I see that God and Christ forgave me a debt that I can never pay him back. Look, if you're here today and you're still kind of exploring this Christianity thing, let me just say this. You will never be able to pay back this debt of sin you owe God. Look, that's, that's why good works is not the solution to eternal life. What you need today is to place your personal faith and trust and cling to Jesus. That is the only way you will ever spend eternity with God in this new heaven, in this new earth where there's complete justice because God is a just God. How could God be just if he doesn't punish your sin? So come to Jesus today and then forgive 
one another. We can never, I'll say this, no one is outside of me extending forgiveness to in light of the gospel. And if that's your heart, you don't understand the gospel. Third, I need to move on quickly. Third characteristic that we're given here is that we should cultivate genuine faith. I've actually combined a couple of passages here. I'm going to look at the second one first. So go down to to verse 11. We're going to look at this verse and then we'll come back. Verse 11. It says, On the way to Jerusalem, the cross is near. When we see this statement in Luke, this is what Jesus is highlighting. Man, he's, he's headed to the cross. He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. They had to, right? Lepers could not approach Jesus. The lepers had probably heard about Jesus' authority to heal, but they could not approach them because of their on illness. And what does it say here? It says, and they lifted up their voice and saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Hey, in the Old Testament, if you were cleansed, they would say to go to the priest, the, the priest of the temple would function like a health inspector to make sure that you truly were cleansed. Jesus is saying, go to the priest as if you're already cleansed. And they had not been healed yet. Now look what happens. It says, and as they went, they were cleansed. How many of them? Ten. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Hey, do you see what's happened here? This leper who could not approach Jesus is now at the feet of Jesus. See, that's what the gospel does. We who are far off, away from God because of our sin, through Christ are brought near to God in the cross. Christ died to bring us to God. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? What does Jesus' rhetorical questions here imply? He's casting shame on the nine who didn't return. And so what we find out is that this miracle is really not about the ten lepers. It's about the one. And the main point of this miracle is that disciples must respond with genuine initial faith. Look what Jesus says. And he said to him, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. He does not say this to the other nine. He says this to the one who returns in genuine faith. So let me just ask you, are you kind of playing games with God? I mean, you want to do this Jesus thing because of some benefit? Hey, I'm sure these lepers, look at how this changed their life. Socially, they can now interact with people. They don't have to stay at a distance. And I know a lot of people want to come to Jesus because it gives them some personal benefit, but they could care less about God. I'll just say this. If you're coming to Jesus and you don't want anything to do with Jesus, that's not genuine faith. And the picture we have of here is coming to, to God and to Jesus for who He is. He is beautiful and He is worthy of everything. And this ought to lead to a life 
style of great praise and generosity. And then we have this other example. Go back to chapter 5. Sorry, verse 5. It says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Do you notice that Jesus turns the, the question around? They're asking, God, increase our faith? And Jesus said, It's not about more faith. It's about genuine faith. The small mustard seed parallels with small, genuine faith. If your faith is as genuine as a small mustard seed, then God can do surprising and amazing things. You see, the problem is not small faith. The problem problem is a lack of genuine faith. And let me just say this. Jesus is not saying that we should now spend our time watching trees leap into the sea. I think you guys get that from the context. The point is that if you take genuine little faith combined with the promises of God, it can produce surprising results. Which of God's promises, if combined with small, genuine faith, could prove transformative in your life this week? Maybe go back to Psalm 23 and say, which of these promises need to be combined with faith and that it would radically change the way you live this week? That's how we read the Word. Last characteristic, I've got to finish quickly, is that we should serve with total humility. Verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep Say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Jesus gives two pictures here. You've got a servant and you've got the master. The servant has worked hard all day and all he wants to do is come home, kick his feet up in the chair and relax and eat. And does the master cook him dinner? Or does the servant work hard all day, come home, and because the servant is still a servant, fix his food immediately for the the master, girds himself, serves the master, till the master's completely done, and only then does he eat. By the way Jesus asked the questions, that's the way that we should go. Now, let me just caution you. Don't take the parable farther than it was intended to go. Usually they have one point. Jesus is not suggesting that we shouldn't serve other people. In fact, Jesus is the very one who got on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. He's the one who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. So don't take it in a way that it was not intended to say. And we've actually already learned in Luke that God has invited us to a feast at the return of Christ. And he will serve us. So what does this mean? We get the answer here in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let me ask you, you started to apply Luke 17. You're not causing others to sin. You're lovingly and gently rebuking 
and even repenting of sin when you're rebuked. And you know what? You are even forgiving. You are showing unrestrained forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. And, and you're combining that with genuine faith. You know what you're tempted to do? You're tempted to say, God, you now owe me. Entitlement. I need to hear this word. Does anybody else need to hear this word today? Jesus says, after you have done all that you have been commanded. You know what? Sometimes I feel good if I've just done one thing right. And Jesus says, after you've done everything that you were supposed to do, you're an unworthy servant. This reflects total humility before God. So I conclude with this example from Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God. At the end of our life, when we have run the race with intensity and faithfulness, our only response before God can still be, I'm just an unworthy servant. And how can you say that unless you see the magnitude of the debt that you have been forgiven? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word today that I needed to hear, that we needed to hear. And God, I pray that as we respond in singing and in partaking of communion, that you would help us to respond rightly. God, if there is bitterness in our heart and unforgiveness, that we would repent of that. If there is a, a brother or sister that needs to be lovingly rebuked, that that would happen. If we have been rebuked, that you would grant us grace to repent. God, that you would help us to have genuine faith in your promises. And God, we long for your return. So God, as we sing, God, search our hearts with this mirror of your word and sanctify us. God, I pray, I pray if there's someone here that for today, for the first time, has seen this large debt they have, that they would come before you today asking you to forgive. And that, that they would see that at the cross, there is forgiveness for even the largest of debts and that they would embrace that and believe that and you would save them today. God, you move in us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.